0: So in the early 1940s, there was a a little girl named Dottie. She was 11 years old. She and her younger sister were visiting their grandparents out, out in California. And then their grandparents put Dottie and her sister on a plane to fly them back to Dallas to be with their parents. The little girls were on the plane without any family with them, all by themselves. So that was a little scary to begin with. But then in midair, the plane began to encounter some turbulence and poor Dottie just became violently ill. This little 11-year-old girl began to throw up everywhere. And so she's not only terrified, but now she's sick and she's got no family there to comfort her. Well, in rushes this man, this stranger, who joins Dottie and her sister in the aisle and picks Dottie up and puts her on his lap and begins to take care of her. In the midst of her sickness, he holds her little sick bag for her for when she needs it. He takes a damp towel and he begins to wipe her face. And for the duration of that flight, this man held Dottie in his arms and comforted her. He kept saying, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Well, the plane finally lands. The man holding Dottie in one arm and and her sister in his other hand, he walks them down to rejoin her their parents, and as Dottie tells the story, her parents see the man and they almost faint. The man was Edward G. Robinson, one of the most famous movie actors of all time. Now, most of us weren't around in the early 40s, right? But for context here, we're talking about Tom Hanks, George Clooney, a serious actor that everybody would have known at first sight, and they almost fell out when they realized what had happened that this great man, for all his fame and his wealth and his reputation, had lowered himself, covered now in sickness, to care for a stranger, a little girl who was sick and scared. See, stories like that are disarming to us. Because really what they do, they work against our nature, right? It's always the powerful, the wealthy, the popular who are served by the rest of us. The less popular, the less powerful, right? And so when we see it work the other way around, it really does come as a shock to our system. It's not meant to be that way. And y'all, I'll just say, at least in my estimation, there's no better example of this. The, The Edward G. Robinson story is really neat. But it doesn't hold a candle to what we see today in John chapter 13. Jesus Christ exemplifying this principle as no one ever did, when he washes his disciples' feet. This is a well-known story, and it's it's well-known for a good reason, because it's amazing to us on many levels. Not only are we drawn into the heart of Christ today, we get to see who he is at the deepest level, but it also shows us the kind of heart Jesus produces in the people who follow him. The kind of heart that you and I are meant to have as those who know and trust the Lord. And so, as we recall, for the sake of context here, John 13 begins right after John 12 ends. Jesus' public ministry is now over. John 12 was the end of his time before the crowds, and now everything else we're going to read prior to the the trial and the cross, everything is done only with Jesus' closest disciples. And then we'll see Jesus in private prayer with God the Father. Very intimate settings here from now on, okay? So look with me at John 13, beginning in verse 1, as the Apostle John sets the stage for us. He says, now before the Passover, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Something, it's almost easy to miss, this little phrase, uh, His hour. We see that in verse 1. Several times now, earlier in in John, Jesus has made kind of an ambiguous statement. My hour has not yet come. We've seen Jesus say that. Elsewhere, John makes the comment. uh, Like when the authorities wanted to grab hold of Jesus and seize Him and do Him harm, John says they couldn't lay a hand on Him because his hour had not yet come. And what we come to realize is that Jesus' hour throughout the Gospel of John is a reference to his time of death, his suffering on the cross. And that is an event, that time of suffering, God has fixed that event according to his own mind and his will. It's going to happen when God declares it will happen and no sooner. So all up to this point, the time has not yet come. Come, well, here we are now at the final Passover meal, where the shadow of the cross looms very large. And John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. It's here. His hour to depart out of this world and return to the Father. And y'all, John, of course, states that kind of matter-of-factly, but when we when we read that term, his hour, that term is filled with agony and pain, and injustice, and all the rest of what we see taking place in the death of Jesus. Jesus, when He contemplates His hour, He knows the horror that awaits Him. And that's part of what makes this account right here all the more stunning. Beginning with the middle of verse 1, Jesus knows His hour has come to suffer and then depart this world, having loved His own who were in the world, John says. He loved them to the end. Which is to say, Jesus, in his greatest moment of distress, knowing what's about to come, is not obsessed with himself. He's thinking about others, his disciples. And so this harkens us now to, to John chapter 10. In John 10, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, that great chapter. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So we, his followers, are the sheep of the good shepherd. And Jesus goes on there to say, I know my own, and my own know me. My own. There's a sense of of ownership, not as master to slaves, but as father to children, as shepherd to sheep, right? And Jesus knows his own. And here John reminds us that he loves them. Oh, how deeply Jesus loved His own. He loved them to the end, it says. And y'all, that means that not only did Jesus love them to the end of his life, but that he loved them to the fullest extent, to the end. The goal of divine love lived out in this world is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no greater love than what is on display in him. He loves us to the full. And y'all, let's just step to the side for just a half a minute. And consider the fact that Jesus' love for His disciples was not predicated on their loveliness. Jesus' love for them was not determined by their worthiness. In this room where these 13 men sit, one of them is going to betray Him. We already know it. We just read it. Judas. One of them the most boastful and brash of them is going to deny ever knowing him, Peter. The rest of them, the scripture says, when push came to shove and the men showed up with clubs and swords and torches to arrest Jesus, they scattered, they ran and abandoned him. So in other words, these guys are just like us. They're just like all of us. They're human beings. They're not terribly lovable In any given moment, right? And so it should actually come as a comfort to us when we read that Jesus loved them to the end, to the full. Why? Not because of anything that was in them that made them worthy of that love, but he loved them because that's who he is. And y'all, the very same thing is true for you and me. Jesus loves us, not because we've earned it, deserved it, or by anything we've done, somehow we've maintained it. No, he loves us because he is love no matter how unlovely you show yourself to be, Jesus' love for you does not wax or wane. You can't deserve it. You can't lose it. He loves us. Now, it's at this point that something really decisive happens, but it doesn't come as a surprise to us. If we've been reading through the Gospel of John, we already know it's coming. We see it in verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, The son of Simon, to betray him. Now, we're going to talk more about the betrayal next week. It's going to feature more in next week's sermon. But here, y'all, this is, I mean, this this is not a small detail. The devil is infiltrating Jesus' own ranks, his closest disciples, seeking to bring Jesus down from the inside. What better way to do it? Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's a brilliant plan, right? If I was the devil, that sounds like a good plan to me. But in reality, Satan is only playing into God's hands. The the betrayal of Judas, which leads to the arrest and the trial and then the crucifixion of Jesus, is precisely how God brings salvation to the world. The betrayal was not somehow a derailment of Jesus' real plans, but it was the fulfillment of his plans. And y'all, that's why verse 3 is attached to verse 2. You see... Uh, Verses 2 and 3 here, Judas, the devil's put it into his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now stop there. The Father has given all things into Jesus' hands, meaning Jesus in that moment is in complete control. Someone from his inner circle is about to betray him. How awful, how evil, and it was. But everything is going according to plan. The betrayal is wrong. Judas was wrong. Evil to do it. But make no mistake here. Jesus will lay down His own life of His own initiative. He's already called His shot. He's already said it. And then He said, no one takes it from Me. No one. Not Judas. Not Caiaphas. Not Pontius Pilate. No one. And so all this divine authority has been given to Christ. He's in control. He is the Son of God. And that's what makes what happens next all the more stunning. What's Jesus going to do now that he's got all this divine authority at his disposal? Well, look again at verse 4. Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, we're going to speak of the meaning of foot washing here in a minute, but just consider the act itself with me. Foot washing was standard practice in ancient Israel because everybody wore open-toed sandals. And the roads and the fields were dusty and sometimes muddy, and so when you entered into someone's home, whether your own home or especially the home of a neighbor or a family member, you reclined for a meal, you needed to have your feet clean. You didn't want to track the mud in there. You didn't want to be ritually unclean for the meal, right? So feet had to be washed, but it was a a miserable, menial task to actually do it. And so it was said among the Jewish rabbis of the day that no Jewish person was allowed to wash feet, because it would be beneath him, beneath that person's image-bearing of God, beneath the glory of God, to make yourself unclean by touching the dirty feet of another. Not even Jewish slaves were permitted to do it. So the only people in certain circles that were allowed to even wash feet to begin with were Gentile slaves because in the mind of the Jews, Gentiles were unclean already, and therefore they were beneath us, they can do it. And if that should give you maybe a sense of this, that the the washing of feet was something that was reserved for only the lowest people on the social ladder. Uh, Y'all, one of the churches that we support is, is in Karachi, Pakistan. I saw this article very randomly in The New York Times a few months ago that people who work down in the sewers in Karachi, which as you can imagine, is not just a dirty job, but it actually you know promotes great sickness and lack of health. It's a horrible, menial thing to do. In Karachi, it says, if you want to work in the gutters, you can only do it if you are a Christian. because the dominant culture there persecutes followers of Jesus, and we will only hire Christians to work down there. And it's a way for them to insult the faith in those who follow Christ. That's the idea we get when it comes to foot washing. And y'all, here Jesus is in John 13, with all his power and authority and grandeur, Jesus lays aside his outer garments. He wraps himself with a towel and he stoops down on his own hands and knees and washes his disciples filthy, If anything, they should be the ones lining up to wash his feet, right? And you know, now maybe I'm reading too much into it, but there's never a place in the gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where we ever see the disciples washing Jesus' feet, even though they esteemed him so. It was perhaps even for them too low to go to wash his feet. It never entered their minds, perhaps, to stoop that low themselves. And so you have to imagine, in this moment, the shock and the embarrassment that these 12 men would have been feeling. And, and maybe this, Okay, so I'm going to give you an example that would mortify me, at least, and so maybe you can relate here. Imagine that one day, very randomly, someone you really admire rang your doorbell, maybe even a celebrity, somebody that you think is just wonderful rings the doorbell. You open the door. You're stunned. And the person says, hey, can I use your restroom? Well, of course, you haven't cleaned your house. You weren't prepared for, for company. But you, if, if, of course, yes, you can use my restroom. So they go in, and it's taking an inordinate amount of time. They come out of the restroom. <laughs> this man or woman, whoever it is in your mind, right, sleeves rolled up, sweat on their brow. And they say, hey, uh, I noticed when I went in there, your toilet needed plunging. And so I did that for you. Think about the. How, there's not a hole big enough for you to crawl in and die in that moment that this person you think is so great stooped down that low for you, All right? Oh, y'all, that's the idea here, really and truly. And I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm not over-exaggerating. Take a look at verse 6 as to what happens. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter, bold and brash Peter. He's always got something to say. Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter's looking at this, of course, from a purely practical level, but Jesus says, I'm doing something right now that you cannot understand but you will understand later. And if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Or we could translate that to say, Jesus says, you have no fellowship with me. You're not one of mine. You're not my disciple unless I wash you. Now that may seem a little extreme, right? Unless you let me wash your feet, you don't really belong to me. But of course, Jesus has clued us into something as to the symbol behind what he's doing. He's not merely cleaning their physical feet. There's a deeper reality at work here that, of course, the disciples and Peter cannot yet grasp. They'll figure it out. The implication being after Jesus has risen from the dead and they've received the Holy Spirit, they'll get it. That the washing here is ultimately a symbol. Jesus is lowering Himself. He's lowering Himself down as a servant. But He's about to go way lower than this. What's happening in John 13 doesn't even begin to show the humility of Christ. He's about to take on a cross. And He's going to suffer the condemnation for our sins. For Peter's sins in this case. Meaning, on the cross, what's about to happen, the Father is going to put onto the Son all of the guilt and all of the penalty that everyone else's sins have earned and deserved. Jesus, although he was sinless, bore in his body the sins of you and me. And so the result of that suffering is that undeserving sinners like us, we will be cleansed and washed from all of our sins. We will be washed clean by the sacrifice of Jesus' life. And without that washing, without receiving his grace to cleanse us, we have no fellowship with him. You cannot know God. You cannot follow Christ ultimately, truly, if you don't know him by faith in the forgiveness of sins. And so maybe to put it more simply, the only way for a person to belong to God is through the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, who has died on our behalf. That's what the foot washing is ultimately a big arrow pointing to, is a greater act of humility and service and mercy and love, which is not just for the disciples, but for the world. Now, of course, Peter doesn't comprehend this yet. He's taking all of this very literally. If foot washing is what makes me belong to Jesus, look at verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. If washing is what gets me close to you, then wash all of me. Now, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean." And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Eleven of the disciples in this room are already clean, meaning their faith is in Jesus, their sins have been forgiven, but one of you is not clean, and that is Judas. And again, we'll talk more about Judas next week. Uh, But in in one sense, we see in in the foot washing here, Jesus stooping down to wash His disciples' feet. Obviously, Jesus is very humble, and we should admire His humility, right? But He's also, remember what John has already told us in verse 1. He's revealing the extent of His love. He loved them to the end. And so the washing is pointing forward. Unless I wash you, you have no part with Me. Unless your sins are forgiven by My grace, then you have no fellowship with the Lord And so he's pointing them and us to the greater work that he's done for us. We should take great encouragement as we look at that phase of this story. That Jesus Christ would stoop so low and display such a heart to love us not by hovering above us and maintaining his divine distance because God and man cannot mix. No, he came in all the way to the bottom. The light entered the darkness, John says, and the darkness could not comprehend it. That's how much Jesus has loved us. Enough to come down to foot level. But we also said this, it's not just an encouragement to us, it's also a great challenge, right? This story is wonderful in the balance here between encouragement and challenge. We don't just look at Jesus here, but we also are meant to look inward. Look at verse 12 with me. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Uh, We mentioned earlier how stories like this one are always uh, startling to us. When we see great and powerful people lowering themselves to serve others, not just for a photo opportunity, right? Not just for the tax break. Not for anything self-serving in that person, but truly someone great, lowering, humbling himself or herself to show value to others, to esteem others as more important than themselves. Y'all, when that happens, when we see it happen, when we see a news story, when we see it in front of our eyes, it arrests our attention because we know it's the exception to the rule. Right? That's the exception the rule. And yet, that's exactly how the disciples view Jesus. How can someone so great lower himself like this to serve us? They can't get over it. But then Jesus makes a point, and this point ought to startle us just as much. To those who follow me, Jesus says, the exception becomes the rule. The exception becomes the rule. We don't just admire Jesus because look how servant-hearted and humble He was. No, the goal here is beyond admiration. It's imitation. Just as I have done for you, so now you do for one another. That's what verse 14 says. If I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Here's the example. Follow me in it. Now, we shouldn't get too tied down to the specific act of foot washing right here. Um, We need to think more broadly than just that. Some churches will do foot washing services, which are wonderful and can be very powerful and meaningful. We're not doing that this morning, by the way. You can rest easy, okay? Chill out, okay? We've not locked the doors from the outside. Keep your shoes on. Um, but y'all think about this. There's a greater purpose Jesus has in mind. It's not merely the washing of feet here, it's an example of something that's truly humbling and even, frankly, humiliating. It's not in any way self serving what Jesus is doing. Jesus had no photographer that followed him around the way the president does to capture moments of importance for the rest of us. No, there's no false humility in him. Jesus is genuinely this way. It's who he is. The greatest man who ever lived, down on his hands and his knees, serving his subordinates and serving them with genuine love. And then he says, a servant is not greater than his master. Which is to say, if Jesus serves us like this, no one who follows him is too good for it. And y'all, that's a message I need to hear because I know my own prideful heart. That there, There's a lot of things I'll do, but then there are certain things that, frankly, I'm, I'm just not, I'm too good for that. Don't ask me to do that. I won't go there. I won't serve him or her, certain kinds of people, perhaps. And I, it's to my shame to say it, but that's the truth of my heart. And frankly, for a lot of us, we, there's an entitlement that's very natural to human beings That Jesus is warring against here. If I've done this for you, you do this for one another. There is no servant greater than his own master. Nobody's too good for this. Not even Jesus held himself too high to wash feet. And that's why we say, y'all, in Christianity, the exception becomes the rule. We become a people who humbly serve one another. We are Christians and therefore we choose Lowliness, so that others may be esteemed. We seek for the good of our brothers and sisters, even though it means a cost will come to us. Perhaps a cost to our own pride or appearances or reputation, but no matter what it is, the cost is not too much because Jesus Christ humbled himself for me and called me to do the same for you. And so this is for us, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, if we've received His Spirit to dwell in us, I want you to know that the Spirit of God will produce an awareness of these kind of opportunities. You don't have to wait for a designated service at the church for us to serve each other. You don't have to wait for us to put something on the calendar so that we can all go do it together. We do that stuff too, that's great. But if you've got the Spirit in you, by faith, then there are countless ways the Spirit will guide us to live this way, to live this out. And y'all, the truth is, and it's a sobering truth for me, every single day is filled with opportunities to set myself aside, to humble myself in service of others, in favor of others. For God's people, us, to reflect the heart of Christ Everywhere we go, serving, loving, giving, laying ourselves down so that others may be... And yet so often, if there's an entitlement in my heart, or simply an ignorance, because I just, I just, I'm too busy, I've got too much occupying my mind and heart, so often I just drive right past them. I walk right by them. And we're called today, not just to admire our Savior, but to walk after Him, to imitate Him. And so, But before we exit these doors, I never want us to walk out these doors simply with something to do without recognizing and taking to heart why we do it and what animates it. Okay? What is it that makes us servant-hearted? It can't be the pastor guilting us into it. All us entitled people, why don't we serve more, right? We'll never walk out of Harvest Church with a a message like that because that doesn't work. And that's not of Christ. What animates this kind of heart is the very person who dwells within us. It's Jesus who does it. And there's no better place to close a message like this than in Philippians chapter 2 because Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us this in beautiful terms, that are very clear and frankly, just eternally wonderful. I'll never get to the bottom of this scripture. Look with me at Philippians 2. Paul gives a command, but then he tethers that command to the grace that motivates it. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind... Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, think on this for just a second. We'll leave the scripture up. Think about how vastly different our lives would be if we actually obeyed that verse. If I, legitimately, if I considered others more important than me, it would revolutionize your life, my life, the church, the world. It really would. But where does that come from? Look at verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now watch how the command is rooted in grace. In Christ. Who? Jesus. Who? Although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, the point of Philippians 2 is really the same as the point of John 13. When we really begin to grasp what Jesus has done for us, emptying himself, laying aside his own glory, Dying for us in order to wash us clean from our sins. When we really begin to grasp that truth, who Jesus is and what He's done, it will melt our hearts. We will not remain the same. We can't. Because as we see and enjoy and delight in the grace that we've been given, we will, by His grace, we will take on more and more a posture of joyful humility and service, and love, because that's who Jesus is. And he now indwells us to make us like him. Now, we, listen, we are saved because the great God of the universe emptied himself and gave his own life to wash us clean. And so truly, right now, where we sit, if we believe that, if we believe Him, the more you and I look to Him in faith and recognize how wonderful He is, the more our hearts will become like His. That's the way it goes. If my faith is in Christ, then I will desire to live as He lived, and His love will animate me every step of the way. The exception has become the rule for us. Let's pray. Father, would You help us this morning to see it so clearly? And I pray that we would, maybe with new eyes, maybe for the first time, see this wonderful grace that we've been given. There has only been one person who has ever lived who had no reason to be humble. Only one. And he came to us as the humblest of all lower, more servant hearted, more self forgetful than all of us combined to the tenth power Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would this divine, sinless, wonderful Savior. That we, and and forgive us, Lord, where we, we just can't picture him this way. It's hard for us to picture him down on his hands and knees serving us. I don't want to picture him that way. I'm like Peter. May it never be that Jesus would do that for me. Father, help us to see that's exactly what He's done. He's lowered Himself even to the cross for us. I pray for anyone in this room or even watching on the internet right now, Lord, if there's anyone who has not yet come to know this Savior, Jesus, by faith. Not by our own efforts, but by receiving Him and all He's done as a free gift. I pray, Lord, that You would bring Your saving grace to their heart and life right now. That they would receive Christ to be forgiven of sin and reconciled to You, Lord. And I pray for those of us who know You, Father, that You would stop us in our tracks today. If there's in me any entitlement, uh, any uh, big dealness, like I'm, I'm too good for certain things, that I pray, Father, strike it down in my heart and put it in the grave. If, if any of us, Lord, just will not humble ourselves as Christ did, then, Father, bring us to repentance this morning. And show us, Father, it's not a punishment to be called to service. It's not, it's, not, it's not humiliation. It's joy to imitate our Savior and to shine His light and show His love to this world around us. It's a joy. Help us to see that. So that we might admire our Savior and trust in Him. And, having trusted Him, that we might do as He did. We might serve others with humble, joyful love. And it's in Christ's name we ask it all. Amen.